Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from the uh, sermons regarding sovereignty by Charles Spurgeon. It's a whole book of those. And we start, or we continue, that is, with one called Free Grace. It was delivered <clears throat> on January 9, 1859, at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens in London, England. His text is Ezekiel thirty-six, thirty-two, where it says, Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God, be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. There are two sins of man that are bred in the bone and that continually come out in the flesh. One is self-dependence. The other is self-exaltation. It is very hard, even for the best of men, to keep themselves from the first error. The holiest of Christians and those who understand best the gospel of Christ find in themselves a constant inclination to look to the power of the Creator, the creature, instead of looking to the power of God and the power of God alone. Over and over again, Holy Scripture has to remind us of that which we never ought to forget, that salvation is God's work from first to last, is not of man, neither by man. But so it is, this old error that, that we are to save ourselves or that we are to, to do something in the matter of salvation always rises up and we find ourselves continually tempted by it to step aside from the simplicity of our faith in the power of the Lord our God. Why, even Abraham himself was not free from the great error of relying upon his own strength. God had promised to him that he would give him a son, Isaac, the child of promise. Abraham believed it. But at last, weary with waiting, he adopted the carnal expedient of taking to himself Hagar to wife. And he fancied that Ishmael would most certainly be the fulfillment of God's promise. But instead of Ishmael's helping to fulfill the promise, he brought sorrow unto Abraham's heart. For God could not have it that Ishmael should dwell with Isaac. Cast out, said the scripture, the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Now we in the matter of salvation, are apt to think that, that God is tarrying long in the fulfillment of his promise. And we set to work ourselves to do something. And what do we do? We sink ourselves deeper in the mire and pile up for ourselves a store of future troubles and trials. Do we not read that it grieved Abraham's heart to send Ishmael away? Ah, and, and many a Christian has been grieved by those works of nature which he accomplished with the design of helping the God of grace. Oh, beloved, we shall find ourselves very frequently attempting the foolish task of assisting omnipotence and teaching the omniscient one. Instead of looking to grace alone to sanctify us, we find ourselves adopting philosophic rules and principles which we think will effect the divine work. We shall but mar it. We shall bring grief into our own spirits. But if, 
Instead thereof, we in every work look up to the God of our salvation for help and strength and grace and succor. Then our work will proceed to our own joy and comfort and to God's glory. That error, then, I say, is in our bone and will always dwell with us. And hence it is that the words of the text are put as an antidote against that error. It is distinctly stated in our text that salvation is of God. Not for your sakes do I this. He says nothing about what we have done or or can do. All the preceding and all the succeeding verses speak of what God does. I will take you from among the heathen. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. It's all of God. Therefore, again, recall to our recollection this doctrine and give up all dependence upon our own strength and power. The other error to which man is very prone is that of relying upon his own merit. Though there is no righteousness in any man, yet in every man there is a proneness to truth in some fancied merit. Strange that it should be so, but the most reprobate characters have yet some virtue, as, as they imagine, upon which they rely. You'll find the most abandoned drunkard pride himself that he's not a, a swearer. You'll find the blaspheming drunkard pride himself that at least he's honest. You'll find men with no other virtue in the world exalt what they imagine to be a virtue, uh, the fact that they do not profess to have any. And they think themselves to be extremely excellent because they have honesty, or rather impudence, enough to confess that they are utterly vile. Somehow the human mind clings to human merit. It always will hold to it. And when you take away everything upon which you think it could rely... In less than a moment, it fashions some other ground for confidence out of itself. Human nature, with regard to its own merit, is like the spider. It bears its support in its own bowels. It seems as if it would keep spinning on to all eternity. Oh, you may brush down one web, but it soon forms another. You may take the thread from one place, you'll find it clinging to your finger. And when you seek to brush it down with one hand, you find it clinging to the other. It's hard to get rid of. It's ever ready to spin its web and bind itself to some false ground of trust. It's against all human merit that I am this morning going to speak. And I feel that I shall offend a great many people here. I'm about to preach a doctrine that is gall and vinegar to flesh and blood, one that will make righteous moralists gnash their teeth and make others go away and declare that I'm an antinomian and perhaps scarcely fit to live. However, that consequence is one which I shall not greatly deplore if, if connected with it there should be in other hearts a yielding to this glorious truth and a giving up to the power and grace of God who will never save us unless we are prepared to let him have all the glory. First, I shall endeavor to expound at large the doctrine contained in this text. In the next place, I shall endeavor to show its force and 
truthfulness. And then in the third place, I shall seek God's Holy Spirit to apply the useful, practical lessons which are to be drawn from it. Number one, I shall endeavor to expound this text. It says, Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. The motive for the salvation of the human race is to be found in the breast of God, not in the character or condition of man. Two races have revolted against God, the one angelic, the other human. When a part of this angelic race revolted against the Most High, justice speedily overtook them. They were swept from their starry seats in heaven, and henceforth they have been reserved in darkness unto the great day of the wrath of God. No mercy was ever presented to them, no sacrifice ever offered for them, but they were without hope and mercy, forever consigned to the pit of eternal torment. The human race, far inferior in order of intelligence, sinned as atrociously. At any rate, if the sins of manhood that we have heard of be put together and rightly weighed, I can scarcely understand how even the sins of devils could be much blacker than the sin of mankind. However, the God who in his infinite justice passed over angels and suffered them forever to expiate their offenses in the fires of hell, was pleased to look down on man. Here was election on a grand scale, the election of manhood and the reprobation of fallen angelhood. What was the reason for it? The reason was in God's mind an inscrutable reason which we do not know, and which, if we knew, probably we could not understand. Had you and I been put upon the choice of which which should have been spared, I do think it probable we should have chosen that fallen angels should have been saved. Are they not the brightest? Have they not the greatest mental strength? If they had been redeemed, would it not have glorified God more, as we judge, than the salvation of worms like ourselves? Those bright beings that Lucifer, son of the morning, and, and those stars that walked in his train, if they had been washed in his redeeming blood, if they had been saved by sovereign mercy, what a song would they have lifted up to the Most High and everlasting God. But God, who doeth as he wills with his own, and gives no account of his matters, but who deals with his creatures as the potter deals with his clay, took not upon him the nature of angels, but took upon him the seed of Abraham, and chose men to be the vessels of his mercy. This fact we know. But where is its reason? Certainly not in man. It says, not for your sakes do I this, O house of Israel. Be ashamed and be confounded for your own ways. Here, very few men will object. We notice that if we talk about the election of men and the non-election of fallen angels, there's not a cavil for a moment. Every man approves of Calvinism until he feels that he is the loser by it. But when it begins to touch his own bone and his own flesh, then he kicks against it. 
Come then, we must go further. The only reason why one man is saved and not another lies not in any sense in the man saved, but in God's bosom. The reason why this day the gospel is preached to you and not the heathen far away is not because, as a race, we are superior to the heathen. It is not because we deserve more at God's hands. His choice of Britain in the election of outward privilege is not caused by the excellency of the British nation, but entirely because of his own mercy and his own love. There is not reason in us why we should have the gospel preached to us more than any other nation. And today some of us have received the gospel and have been changed by it and have become the heirs of light and immortality, whereas others are left still to be the heirs of wrath. But there is no reason in us why we should have been taken and and others left. As the poet says, there was nothing in us to merit esteem or give the Creator delight. Twas even so, Father, we ever must sing, because it seemed good in thy sight. And now, let us review this doctrine at length. We are taught in Holy Scripture that long before this world was made, God foreknew and foresaw all the creatures he intended to fashion. And there and then, foreseeing that the human race would fall into sin and deserve his anger, determined in his own sovereign mind that an immense portion of the human race should be his children and should be brought to heaven. As to the rest, he left them to their own deserts, to to sow the wind and reap the whirlwind, to scatter crime and inherit punishment. Now, In the great decree of election, the only reason why God selected the vessels of mercy must have been because he would do it. There was nothing in any one of them which caused God to choose them. We all were alike, all lost, all ruined by the fall, all without the slightest claim upon his mercy, all in fact deserving his utmost vengeance. His choice of anyone and his choice of all his people are causeless, so far as anything in them was concerned. It was the effect of his sovereign will and of nothing which they did, or could do, or or even would do. For thus saith the text, Not for your sakes do I this, O house of Israel. As for the fruit of our election, in due time, Christ came into this world and purchased with his blood all those whom the Father hath chosen. Now come ye to the cross of Christ. Bring this doctrine with you, and remember that the only reason why Christ gave up his life to be a ransom for his sheep was because he loved his people. But there was nothing in his people that made him die for them. I was thinking as I came here this morning, if any man should imagine that the love of God to us was caused by anything in us, it would be as if a man should look into a well to find the springs of the ocean, or dig into an anthill to find the Alps. The love of God is so immense, so 
boundless, and so infinite that you cannot conceive for a moment that it could have been caused by anything in us. The little good that is in us, the, the no good that is in us, for there is none, could not have caused the, the boundless, bottomless, shoreless, summitless love which God manifests to his people. Stand at the foot of the cross, ye merit mongers, ye that delight in your own works, and answer this question. Do you think that the Lord of life and glory could have been brought down from heaven, could have been fashioned like a man, and have been led to die through some merit of yours? And shall these sacred veins be opened with any lancet less sharp than his own infinite love? Do you conceive that your poor merits, such as they are, could be so efficacious as to nail a redeemer to the tree and make him bend his shoulders beneath the enormous load of the world's guilt? You cannot imagine it. The consequence is so great compared with what you suppose to be the case that your logic fails in a moment. Well, you may conceive that a coral insect rears a rock by its multitude and, and by its many years of working, but you cannot conceive that all the accumulated merits of manhood, if there were such things, could have brought from heaven, the eternal, from the throne of his majesty, bowed him to the death of the cross. That's a thing as clearly impossible to any thoughtful mind as, as impossibility can be. No, from the cross comes the cry, not for your sakes do I this, O house of Israel. After Christ's death, there comes in the next place the work of the Holy Spirit. Those whom the Father hath chosen and whom the Son has redeemed in due time, the Holy Spirit calls out of darkness into marvelous light. Now the calling of the Holy Spirit is without any regard to any merit in us. If this day the Holy Spirit shall call out of this congregation uh, a hundred men and bring them out of their estate of sin, into a state of righteousness. You shall bring these hundred men and let them march in review. And if you could read their hearts, you would be compelled to say, I see no reason why the Spirit of God should have operated upon these. I see nothing whatever that could have merited such grace as this, nothing that could have caused the operations and motions of the Spirit to work in these men. For look ye here, by nature, men are said to be dead in sin. If the Holy Spirit quickens, it cannot be because of any power in the dead men or any merit in them. They're dead, corrupt and rotten in the grave of their sin. If then the Holy Spirit says, come forth and live, it's not because of anything in the dry bones. It must be for some reason in his own mind, but not in us. Therefore know you this, men and brethren, that we all stand upon a level. We have none of us anything that can recommend us to God. And if the Spirit shall choose to operate in our hearts unto salvation, he must be moved to do it by his own supreme love. 
for he cannot be moved to do it by any good will, good desire, or, or good deed that dwells in us by nature. And to go a little further, this truth, which, which holds good so far, it holds good all the way. God's people, after they're called by grace, are preserved in Christ Jesus. They're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. They are not suffered to sin away their eternal inheritance. But as temptations arise, they have strength given with which to encounter them. And as sin blackens them, they are washed afresh and again cleansed. But Mark, the reason why God keeps his people is the same as that which made them his people, his own free sovereign grace. If, my brother, you have been delivered in the hour of temptation, pause and remember that you were not delivered for your own sake. There was nothing in you that deserved the deliverance. If you've been fed and supplied in your hour of need, it's not because you've been a faithful servant of God, nor because you have been a prayerful Christian. It's simply and only because of God's mercy. He's not moved to anything he does for you by anything that you do for him. His motive for blessing you lies wholly and entirely in the depths of his own bosom. Blessed be God, his people shall be kept. Nor death, nor hell shall e'er remove his favorites from his breast. In the dear bosom of his love, they must forever rest. And to conclude my exposition of this text, this shall hold good in heaven itself. The day is coming when every blood-bought, blood-washed child of God shall walk the golden streets arrayed in white. Our hands shall soon bear the palm. Our ears shall be delighted with celestial melodies and our eyes filled with the transporting visions of God's glory. But Mark, the only reason why God shall bring us to heaven shall be his own love and not because we deserved it. We must fight the fight, but we do not win the victory because we fight it. We must labor, but the wage at the day's end shall be a wage of grace, not debt. We must honor God here, looking for the recompense of the reward, but that recompense will not be given on a legal ground because we merited it, but given to us entirely because God had loved us for no reason that was in us. When you and I and each of us shall enter into heaven, our song shall be not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name be all the glory. And that shall be true. It shall not be some exaggeration of gratitude. It shall be true. We shall be compelled to sing it because we could not sing anything else. We shall feel that we did nothing and that we were nothing, but that God did it all that we had nothing in us to be the motive of, of his doing it, but that his motive lay in himself. And therefore, unto him shall be every particle of the honor forever and ever. And this, I take it, is the meaning of the text. How distasteful it, it is to the great majority, even of professing Christians in this age, it's a doctrine that requires a great deal of salt or else few people will receive it. It's very unsavory to them. However, there it stands. Let God be true and every man a liar. His truth we must preach and this we must proclaim. 
Salvation is not of men, neither by man, not of the will of the flesh, nor of blood, nor of birth, but of the sovereign will of God and God alone. Amen. Next time we get together, folks, we'll talk about the part two and three. I think there were yeah three parts to this. We'll do the other two next time. He's going to illustrate and enforce the text when we come back. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, do look around the website when you have a moment. I won't keep you any longer today. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.